a song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Now, over the summer, a good friend told me about a weekend they'd spent with their extended family. His family are not a Christian family. And on the one hand, he said it was just so nice to spend time with them, to catch up and to see them. But he also said he left feeling worn down because the background tone of the weekend was scorn that he was a follower of Jesus. If we've been a Christian any length of time, we'll have felt what it is to experience contempt or scorn for our faith. Many will be receiving A-level results this week, will have just received them. As an A-level student, I remember sitting with a friend in the library and then them saying, well, how can an intelligent person like you believe in Jesus? Now, clearly he was making a generous assumption about my intellect But however he meant it, it was a put-down, as if to say, well, you must, in fact, be an idiot. Perhaps we've felt it in the workplace. One worker described sharing his faith in the office, and one of his colleagues replying something along the lines of, I'm so pleased you found something to help you and something that makes you happy, but I'm a strong and independent person, and I simply don't need anything to help me through life. Again, however it was meant, it was a patronizing put-down. Contempt and scorn from unbelievers is something that Christians all across the world experience. The charity Open Doors estimates 360 million Christians worldwide experience high levels of persecution or discrimination for their faith. And it's been the experience of those who believe in the Lord God revealed in the Bible and who live as his people all through history. And it was the experience of the psalmist and those traveling with him in Psalm 123, thousands of years ago. Have a look at verse 3. The psalmist writes, Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Psalm 123 is the fourth of this group of psalms called the Songs of Ascent. And we've seen over the last few weeks that these psalms are words that are here to keep us going on the journey to the heavenly Jerusalem. Psalm 123 was first written for a journey, most likely back from exile to the earthly city of Jerusalem. But the language through all these psalms, and indeed through all of this fifth book of the psalms, is language that far exceeds a description of a historical return, a physical return to an earthly city. And then with the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah speaking of a return from exile to a heavenly city, well, we find that these are words that the Christian can take hold of. We can take hold of to encourage us on the journey to the new creation. A few weeks ago, we saw in Psalm 121, the journeying pilgrim looking at the way ahead and considering the hazards. He said, I lift my eyes to the hills, From where does my help come? But that psalm gave 
wondrous assurance that despite the dangers that the hills pose, the Lord will keep us. And here in Psalm 123, we look at the danger of contempt and scorn from Christ, uh, towards Christians. And we discover that the Lord, in his loving commitment to keep his people, well, he teaches us how to keep going in the face of contempt, even when we grow weary. And so we have three points. You'll see them on the handout this morning. First, the burden of contempt, and then the eye of hope, and finally, the certainty of mercy. So the burden of contempt. Verse three again, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Contempt is to despise. We hear that phrase, the contempt of court, when someone behaves in a way that shows disdain to the proceedings. It's to treat someone, uh, to look down on someone, even to hate them. And then added to this contempt is scorn or ridicule, mockery, put-downs, mistreatments. I recently spoke to a school, school pupil who described how they were speaking to another student about Jesus, someone who was interested, and they often spoke to them. And whenever they did, another friend would hear and interrupt and say, stop talking about that stupid stuff. I was reading this week of a family in South Asia whose neighbors and relatives expelled them from the community for their faith in Jesus. And the church they're part of sought to build a small home for them, but they couldn't afford to finish it. They ran out of money. It had no roof. And so the community mocked them, saying, call out to your God. He will take care of you. Show us your God is better than ours. And this psalmist says this contempt and scorn comes from people who are at ease and proud. You see that in verse 4, the scorn of those who are at ease, the contempt of the proud. And here these phrases particularly describe the unbeliever. And it's worth saying this doesn't mean that everyone who doesn't follow Jesus is especially arrogant in the way they behave. We can no doubt think of people who are not Christian and we'd say they were humble or gentle or far from conceited. It's not to say that Christians can't be full of themselves either. But when the psalmist speaks of the proud here, he's using the language of the rejection of the Lord. To resist the Lord God as our God, well, that is the highest act of arrogance. The Lord God, made known to us supremely in the person of the Lord Jesus, is creator of all. He is creator of every one of us here. And Jesus Christ is risen today as attested by his resurrection in history. And he is ruler of all. And so to ignore our maker and reject his son, who he's exalted as king over the world, is the ultimate expression of pride. It's a bit like growing up in a loving home where our parents give us all the good things we need and they care for us and look after us. And then we refuse ever to speak to them or acknowledge them. And we live like we did it all ourselves. And the attitude is what the Bible calls sin. One early writer, Augustine, said that pride is the start of every sin. And he said it because at its heart, it is to exalt ourselves above our maker rather than humbly submit to him. And so the psalmist speaks of the contempt of the proud. But he also describes the scorn of those who are at ease. And it's intriguing language, isn't it? What does he mean by those who are at ease? They're surely with the proud. 
And yet this language adds to the picture. It's a word that's in fact used to describe the great Assyrian army of King Sennacherib when they launched a siege on Jerusalem. And that was an army full of self-confidence, a sense of power and establishment. It's the person who finds no resistance in the world around them to their way of life. They have a safe position in the established context of the time. Society will back them. They've got a grip on power or influence, or at least they're lining up with those who do. And as they settle and prosper in rebellion to their maker, well, they look down on the follower of Jesus. How pointless to invest your life in that. How weak that you're somebody that needs that. How obnoxious or offensive even that you believe that. Over the summer, I began reading a biography of the 18th century preacher George Whitfield. And early on in his ministry, and so conveniently early on in the book, one of his supporters, Lady Huntington, wrote to Duchess of Buckingham to invite her to come and hear him preach. And this is what the Duchess replied. It's monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. The scorn of those at ease. And as it happens, the Duchess of Buckingham's reply goes on. And if nothing else, this is just an insight into 18th century etiquette. Because having poured such scorn, she then writes, I shall be most happy to accept your kind offer of accompanying you to hear your favourite preacher. I mean, perhaps the modern paraphrase might be something like this. I'll go with you because I'm a great one, but I think you're mad to believe this and I want you to know it. And here in the psalm, well, we find the believers facing no end of it. No end of contempt and scorn. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. And we may find this in personal relationships, perhaps the ongoing interactions with family or neighbours or colleagues or community. I was chatting to Rob earlier about some of the Muslim background believers he knows, and he described the common experience of just ongoing rudeness that Christian believers experience from the community. We may feel it collectively in what one writer calls the mood music of our society. It's just there in the background, especially in the media. The proud and easy have access to the powerful outlet of TV shows, of uh, articles, podcasts, and we see there, well, a mockery of Christians or a presentation of Christians as weird or outdated or dangerous. And in some nations around the world, those in power and at ease will have the power to apply severe persecution or discrimination. And so like the psalmist, it can wear us down. It can make us weary on the journey It might even tempt us to give up the pilgrimage to the heavenly city. We've had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough. But if the burden of contempt is the danger to our journey, the psalm itself is written to keep us going despite the danger. And so we come to our second point. We must open the eye of hope. Verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, 
as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. This mini-series in the Psalm of Ascent has been called the Ultimate Road Trip Playlist. And I was trying to think of a song uh, title with eyes in it for this talk. I came across a band called the Flamingos from the 1950s. I don't know if anyone's come across them. Few at the 10 o'clock had. Well, they have a song called I Only Have Eyes For You. But I wonder if they might have another title. In preparing, I found an older writers refer to this psalm with the Latin phrase, oculus sperans, which means the eye of hope. Perhaps if you're trying to remember what we were thinking about this morning over lunch, that would be the phrase that would help you get back into this psalm. The eye of hope, oculus sperans. All through this psalm, you see, the psalmist is calling us to look with our eyes and fix them on an unshakable hope of deliverance. And we're so used to that idea, aren't we, of looking to someone for deliverance or someone for help. It's a really common phrase, the child looks to their parents. In the office, we say things like, we need to look to management. In the superhero world, Metropolis looks to Superman. And in our society, it seems that our knee-jerk reaction so often is to see a problem and look to government to solve it. As Christians experiencing the weariness of contempt, we're to look to one place alone. First one, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. It's like the psalmist is teaching us collectively by giving us his personal example. To you, I lift up my eyes. It's an individual action. As we collectively may face the burden of contempt, Well, there's a personal response for us to lift up our eyes. And we don't just lift them anywhere. In Psalm 121, the psalmist lifted up his eyes to the hills. And there it seemed like a look of despair. The journey lay ahead, and there were these hills full of threat and danger. And when we're wearied and burdened by contempt, well, it may feel our eyes can only fix on the trials or the people causing the scorn. And it may feel too much. Our soul has had more than enough. But as the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon so wonderfully puts it, in Psalm 123, the psalmist looks not to the hills, but to the God of the hills. He shifts his eyes off those who pour contempt and on to the one who's enthroned in heaven. To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in heavens, the eye of hope. And this is what the psalmist wants to teach us. He sings it to himself. He wants us to sing it corporately. To you I lift up my eyes. You could imagine the pilgrims on the journey reminding one another of the need to fix their eyes on the Lord. And in one sense, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? But it's not always easy to do. We'll need to determine to do it. Spurgeon again puts it well, we must use our eyes with resolution, for they will not go upward to the Lord of themselves, but they will incline to look downward or inward or anywhere but to the Lord. There may be times when we need to help one another lift up our eyes. One Puritan writer counsels us to read to one another the great truths of the Lord that we might help one another Fix our eyes on him. 
And we're reminding one another that our God is enthroned in the heavens. Because for the Christian, the one who loves us, our God, is the one who rules above all powers and authorities. In the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5, we get invited into the throne room to take a look. And there we see the Lord God Almighty on the throne, creator, ruler, king in all his glory. And at his right hand, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, the Lord Jesus exalted and reigning with authority to oversee all of history. Our God is enthroned in the heavens. And as we fix our eye on him, well, it puts all opposition in perspective. The proud and the easy look so powerful, don't they? They've got power over media or TV or government or even armies. They have platforms to make messages about Christians being weak or weird or dangerous. But what a difference when our eyes are fixed on the one enthroned in the heavens, to whom all people will be called to account, the creator with all the power and ability to help, power so vastly exceeding that of the proud and the ease, it's almost laughable. The ultimate, my dad is bigger than your dad. With our eyes looking to our God, one writer puts it like this, we can begin to believe that those who oppose us are nothing compared to the Lord who's enthroned in heaven. And to gain this perspective, we want to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord. But what does it look like to do that? Well, verse 2 shows us. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. The image here is the way servants look to the hand of their master, the hand that gives instructions and the hand from which provision comes. It's a picture of patient dependence, of humble submission. The servant can't make a demand of his master. The servant asks and the servant waits, eyes fixed on the hand, trusting and expectant and patiently waiting for all needs. And then the image is repeated as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. And in the Psalms, these repetitions encourage us just to focus on the picture, to look at it from different angles. And it emphasizes the point. This dependent trust is for all God's people. It's the eye of hope that looks to the Lord, depending on him alone and confident in him alone. I mentioned my chat with Rob earlier about believers in the Saleti community. He described their ongoing, persevering dependence on the Lord. He said it's a continuing to live for Jesus because eyes are again and again lifted up from those who scorn to the good and loving master and entrusting themselves to his care. Because the one enthroned in heaven will have mercy on his people And this is our third point, the certainty of mercy. We see it at the end of verse 2. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. The very heart of this psalm focuses on God's mercy. Verse 2 is a statement of confidence, till he has mercy on us. And it leads to a dependent cry. Verse 3, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. Mercy can't be earned. Mercy is given. To receive mercy is to be spared, not because we deserve it, but because out of the kindness 
of the one who shows mercy. And it's at this point in the psalm when he's focusing on God's mercy and its certainty that he then uses God's name, the Lord. The Lord in capitals there is what the Hebrew text would have the name Yahweh. And Yahweh is God's covenant name. He's saying the Lord is the God who's made covenant promises to us. And not only has he made them, but he will keep them. And his promises are a promise of mercy for all who come to him. The psalmist would have known the great declaration in the book of Exodus where God declared his name to Moses. And he's described himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord is a God of mercy who has made promises of mercy, which are accomplished in his gospel of mercy. And so the psalmist instructs the Christian believer, suffering the contempt, to look to the Lord. He's got mercy in his hand, to look with eyes of hope as we wait for it. And we know we will receive mercy, because we know what the Lord has done. In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, he humbled himself to bear contempt and scorn at the hands of men and women, so his mercy might flow to all who turn to him. And through his life on earth, the Lord Jesus suffered ridicule and derision at the hands of the proud and easy, and supremely he bore contempt at the cross. In Matthew's Gospel, he records, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. The Lord Jesus is the perfect example of the one who looks to the Lord as the eyes of a servant look to the hand of their master. We said those words together from 1 Peter. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And yet, even more than an example, Jesus endured this contempt and scorn on the cross to pay the price for all the times we have treated him with contempt or scorn, so that his mercy might flow as God promised to all who come to him. So when we look to the Lord with the eye of hope, as we wait in dependence for mercy, well, we know he will have mercy, because he already has And the cross assures us of his unshakable, unquenchable mercy. Well, it may be that as we wait on him, we experience what we might call mini deliverances in times of contempt and scorn as they subside or people move on. The family in South Asia, well, they received help from other Christians to finish their home. Their neighbors had mocked them, but God had done exactly what they said he couldn't. But we know that as followers of Jesus, contempt will come and it will come again. 
Jesus suffered scorn and contempt in this world as it resisted his good rule. And so his people will face the same scorn he did. Jesus says, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. But Jesus' people also know his mercy poured out at the cross. And because his mercy flows to those who come to him as Lord, well, we know contempt will one day fully end because he's prepared a place for us in the heavenly Jerusalem where all contempt and scorn will be banished forever. And so I wonder if this psalm can help us not only as we endure contempt, but as I've been thinking about it this week, also to grow us in a willingness to live for Jesus in such a way that contempt might come. Because perhaps it's the fear of scorn that holds us back. Because we think, well, how will I endure it? What if family or friends or neighbours or colleagues or community pour scorn and I have to live among them? We may think, how would I keep going if that contempt were to come? And here the psalmist says, you can. Because the Lord is enthroned in the heavens and he is a Lord of mercy. His mercy is more. We can fix our eyes on him, knowing that deliverance will come. Or it may be that we're here this morning and we've not yet turned to follow Jesus, but we, we sort of want to, but the fear of scorn holds us back. Well, Psalm 123 ultimately points our eyes to the cross, because there we see the Lord's mercy poured out in the work of Jesus Christ. Mercy, which means we won't face judgment for our sin and what it deserves. And mercy that assures us that our Lord and Master and Father will deliver us. So what will keep us going in the face of contempt and scorn? Well, we fix our eyes on a merciful Lord enthroned in the heavens, the eye of hope, until the day when he returns and fully and finally delivers us from all contempt and scorn forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the Lord God enthroned in the heavens, that you rule above all powers and authorities, that you are greater than any person or community or power that treats your people with contempt and scorn. We thank you that you are the Lord who has mercy. We thank you that you've poured your mercy out to us through the death of the Lord Jesus at the cross. And we thank you that in your mercy you'll bring a full and final end to all the scorn and contempt we endure. Please help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, that we might keep going in the journey. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.